VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, June the 15th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue to come on the show and talk about whatever's on your mind this morning. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, the time has come. Game one of the Stanley Cup Finals tonight. Where are you watching it? Who you got? I would imagine, unless you're a Tampa Bay Lightning fan. Probably an awful lot of people cheering for the Colorado Avalanche. Just imagine if the Stanley Cup was part of come home year. And Alex Nook proudly brings it down. I was going to say his, his home street address, but I'll leave that out there. But game one tonight. Okay. This is a strange one. So, you know, I don't mind doing a little bit of review of today in history. Today in history in 2012, Nick Walenda... He actually tightrope across, successfully tightrope across Niagara Falls. The, some of the sites that I go to for some of these tidbits, it said he became the first person to successfully tightrope walk across Niagara Falls, which is simply not true. Now, they actually had to get legislation enabled by then New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to allow Mr. Walenda, of course a descendant of the famous Flying Walendas, to take on this ridis- ridiculous task or attempt. So let me tell you about a guy named Charles Blondin. Born in 1824 in France, only grew to be 5'5 five five and 140 pounds, he went on to be quoted famously as saying, A rope walker is like a poet, born and not made. He made his way to the United States in 1858 at the age of 34. So he was born as Jean-Francois Gravelet. He's better known, of course, as Monsieur Charles Blondin. He traveled to Niagara Falls, hoping to become the first person to cross what he called the Boiling Cataract. He had a rope of 1,300 feet long, two inches in diameter, made entirely of hemp, be the sole thing separating him from the rolling waters below. Never worked with a net, Monsieur Blondin. So the story's really extraordinary. I read this in the Smithsonian Magazine. So, apparently, I mean, he did things like not only this tightrope walk across successfully over Niagara Falls, but he did it one time where he did it entirely walking backwards. He did it one time pushing a wheelbarrow. Extraordinary stuff. And, of course, he was well aware of the appeal of the morbid of the masses. You know, it's one of those things. You can't take your eyes off a car wreck, right? People squint. You don't want to see what might be just a very traumatic scene, but people do. It's part of human nature. Now, not everyone praised Monsieur Blondin. Even Mark Twain said he's a reckless ass, the adventurous ass. He was condemned wide and far in the New York Times, but I'm sure he couldn't have cared less. So, on his final performance, July the 15th, with President Miller, uh, Miller Fillmore in attendance, he walked backward to Canada and returned to the U.S. pushing the wheelbarrow. Like, what is going on with this guy? So by the time of his death, he died at the age of 73, complications due to diabetes. He went on to joke that he never had life insurance because he knew no one would take the risk. During his career, it's estimated that he crossed Niagara Falls 300 times and walked over 10,000 miles on his tightrope. Charles Blondin, born in 1824. (laughs) Imagine. I mean, just even wanted to do it once. But apparently, even a couple of the times where he did it, he'd make his way to the Canadian side, have a few drinks of rum, take the flask with him for his return trip to the United States side, and have a couple of swallies en route. Charles Blondin. Wild. Anyway, how about that one? Also, maybe a little bit more 
uh, down to earth is today in history, 19, or pardon me, 1752, Benjamin Franklin proved that lightning is electricity with his famous kite and key experiment today, 1752. Maybe you learn about it in school. Right. So let's talk about the K-12 system. And here we are. School is just about out. A couple of weeks left, I guess. The questions will be varied about the fact that learning loss is real and preparation for the next grades and even how we assess students. I'm not an educator. I know many modern-day trained educators say the old form of rote memorizing your times table and the way we conducted exams in the past is antiquated, I'm told. But what do we actually do to assess students? I guess it uh, changes and varies from grade to grade, but marks are in today, the final marks. I know the principals have been reading over the report cards, and so with maybe just a few limited opportunities for second assessments or to complete some of the assignments that you didn't do during the school year, maybe some of that is happening. But with no testing, no exams, no public exams, what exactly are the students doing in school? I guess it's going to be up to the teachers and the administrators to keep them occupied. But occupied with what? If we're not working towards completing the year with the normal course of examinations, I just wonder what exactly are we doing? And I see yesterday Minister Tom Osborne, the Minister of Education, talking about the fact, now we've got to get this right, when we expand the $10 a day daycare, early childhood education, we have to ensure that the accessible spaces for regulated, unregulated, urban, rural, all the moving parts that we've talked about on the show. And importantly, to ensure that we have enough and well-trained and well-compensated early childhood educators. So there is a subsidy that goes to them, an income supplement, pardon me, an additional $16,000 a year, which brings their rate of pay, well, the play and the plan is moving from the $15 an hour now into $25 to $26 per hour in January of 2023. We've got to get early childhood education right. And you know, when kids, I was going to say age out, but so many families are losing their space for their older child because there's a unlevel playing field with some of the subsidies flowing from the government. So if you're a daycare operator or the parent of a child who's uh, at daycare, Let's have a chat about it today. And yes, $10 a day. I don't have children that need daycare. I don't have any so-called skin in this game. But I do think if we want to look around at how it's worked, where it's worked, why it's worked, there's an upside for all of us to make it affordable and accessible inside the world of daycare. Want to talk about it? Let's go. Let's go right back to the other end of it now, high school. This is an unfortunate reflection of where we are in this country. There's going to be hundreds of thousands of high school students in Quebec, Alberta, Ontario, and British Columbia. They're going to be doing some work with the Advanced Coronary Treatment Foundation. So they already offer CPR and uh, automated external defibrillator training in high schools. And now they're going to be training students, hundreds of thousands of them, what to do, how to respond when someone is overdosing on opioids, and how to inject naloxone. Imagine. That's where we are. Now, when we learn first aid in school, whether it be the Heimlich Maneuver or CPR, the reality is you might be much, it's much more likely that you'll see someone experience an opioid overdose than ever having to apply the Heimlich Maneuver for someone choking on a hot dog. It's just really a sad reflection of what's happening on the ground. Now, when I saw the news story on social media, some of the comments were interesting. You know, this is disgraceful. This should not be happening. You know, they should be in school to learn. But we're also in school to learn some life skills. And if 
I don't know how this constitutes ridiculous when what happens if one of these students who's now getting training on how to inject naloxone absolutely saves someone's life? I mean, it's happening. Here's some numbers. The Public Health Agency of Canada reports that there was at least 5,386 deaths related to opioids between January and September of 2021. 94% of them were accidental. So as much as we'd like to shield our teenage sons and daughters from some of these very sad, scary, bleak stories, the problem with that is if we pretend it's not happening, it doesn't go away. But isn't that something else? High school students. Now, there was a pilot program in Ontario, which has now been extrapolated to expand, uh, expanding to Quebec, Alberta, Ontario, and BC, I said Ontario twice, the rest of the provinces sometime afterwards. But that's where we are. And the street supply of some of these drugs is so toxic that people are dying completely unnecessarily here in the country. But that's really quite the story if you want to tackle it. And I know British Columbia given an exemption from the Criminal Code of Canada to decriminalize 2.5 grams or less of illicit drugs. Not being very well received, but and it certainly won't do much in the way of uh, reducing op- opioid overdoses because the street supply is so awful. But where it's been implemented in the past in other jurisdictions, crime is down, overdoses are down, numbers of people using are down, hepatitis cases are down, HIV cases are down. So there's some upside to it. And I know people don't like to hear that, but... We can talk about it if you're so inclined. Moving on to another one of the vices and addictions that we happen to deal with, certainly in this province and around the country and the world, is alcohol. Now, apparently, it's really something else going on at the NLC and their different outlets. So they are on track to lose more than $500,000 in retail sales mostly because of a significant rise in theft. So they've got some pretty organized people out there. And it's not just the fact they're coming in with masks on and use a reusable bag to shield the product that they're stealing. They're organized. They case out the shops. They come in and sometimes steal 60 bottles at a time, threatening the employees. So additional security will be brought on. And once you step outside with a bottle of whatever that you stole, and didn't pay for it, it's now contraband. And some of the penalties that can be levied are pretty stiff, pretty severe. But how brazen are they at all? So they get caught. Now, the NLC does not want any customers to intervene when you see this happening. I actually saw it happening at a Liquor Express store there a couple of months ago, as I told you. So don't do anything. It's not your job. But the additional security and the training that they have and the ability to apprehend one of these people committing the old five-finger discount. So it's pretty wild. You know, and we can talk about the uh, record dividend for the province and the potential of whatever goes on behind the covers of the Rothschild Report and the NLC. But somebody, and not somebody, tons of people on the street know exactly what's going on with these organized rings of liquor thieves. Because they're stealing so much, it can't be just for personal consumption. They've got a little black market set up going somewhere. You know they do. And so if you steal $5,000 worth of liquor, that's an awful lot of tax-free cash that they're going to get for regardless how inexpensively they're selling the products they stole from me and you, right? They stole them from us. So that story is really something else. Sick with money for a second. I'm sure a huge sigh of relief for the prisoners and maybe many others regarding the fact that the trio between the uh, Basilica Foundation and St. Bonaventure's College and the St. Bonaventure's Forum, apparently they've successfully bid to keep those three entities operating as they are today. 
So somewhere apparently north of three million dollars, and there will be additional information coming sometime in the near future. It still has to be proved by a court. But if you're one of those folks out there, one of the other 34 parishes, that is in jeopardy of losing your church and maybe your parish hall and whatever else. We can take it on. But congratulations to the winning bid. Okay, bit of healthcare. So. We talk about when so many doctors are leaving, it'd be helpful to know why. How some people say, if we pay them enough, they'll stay. We know that there was some while back a fairly contentious meeting between uh, Minister Haggie and some of the pending graduating class at Memorials Med School. And yes, it's probably a very good idea to pick up the five seats that were formerly financed by the government of New Brunswick and have more seats for people from this province. And we know, so says the dean of the med school, uh, uh, Dean Steele, is that 65 to 70% of the local grads will stay. And this is coming from a, a listener, and I think it's absolutely on point. She was at Mons Convocation uh, Ceremony on the morning of the 2nd of June. At that ceremony, 81 people received their Doctor of Medicine degrees. 61 of the people are from this province. Premier Fury was in attendance. You know, while we talk about exit interviews, how formally have we approached every one of the 81 grads to ask them about their plans and to encourage them, however we possibly can, to set up shop here? Now, some of it is a bit more complicated when you're looking for the additional two years of mentoring and training to become a family physician. But what do we know about the 81 grads? How many of them are staying? Where do they plan on staying? You know, what's left for their residency so that they can maybe open up their own clinic, wherever. But I thought that was pretty, pretty intuitive question there is, how many of those have we actually approached and done everything we possibly can to keep them here in the province? All right, and uh, let's keep going. Oh, this is a probably pretty uh, good news. We talk about healthy eating and access and, you know, maybe some of the long road trips people take to try to save a few bucks on food, and some of that might indeed be going to Costco, right, or going to the Walmart, or what have you. So there's now uh, a memorandum of understanding between Big Feed Club Grocery Delivery and DRL Coach Lines. They're going to be distributing fresh grocery and essential products across the island portion of the province coming up soon. So we know the hiccups in the global supply chains. We know the issues surrounding the explosion and the price of everything that we touch and things that we buy in the grocery store. So between the price point and what people say might be the quality of product coming from Costco, you don't even need a Costco membership to avail of this particular service. I'm sure this is going to be of interest to many folks across the province. So good luck and congratulations to both of those groups as they go ahead and bring this forward. But I'm going to keep saying, let's start building some greenhouses as far as the eye can see. What do you think? Talk about eating. Still no word from DFO on the recreational food fishery. You would be shocked just how many people every single day are emailing me asking me if I have information on when the uh, season is going to open. The summer season and consequently the fall season. We have no idea. The last vagaries we heard from the uh, DFO was that they're working towards a special program to accommodate come home year. All right. You know, what kind of effort is goes into that? I'm not trying to minimize some of the work they do, but... What exactly is going on? People want to know. And again, I don't think in the last few weeks there's been anything more topical in my email inbox than the recreational food fishery, but I wish I had answers for you, but I don't know. But we know what eats some of the fish as opposed to some of us who jig them and fry them and eat them. Seals. There's a private member's bill brought forward by Conservative MP uh, Clifford Small from the Costa Bay, Central Notre Dame. Bill C-251 to be tabled. 
It's calling on the fisheries and oceans to develop management plans for pinnipeds, seals, sea lions, and walruses on the east and west coast of and northern Canada. Now, the plea from Mr. Small and others is that the other six members of parliament from this province, all liberals, would support this particular private member's bill. It looks like it's highly questionable as to whether or not they will. Now, I guess it remains to be seen who says what or who votes which way. There's an estimated population of harps, some 7.6 million uh, off our shores in 2019. Back in the 70s, a couple of million. So there's an issue. Even Joyce Murray, the Minister of Fishery, says, yeah, seals eat fish. We all know that to be true. But at some point, when does, when does it feel like we're arriving at the end of the seal road? You know, whether this bill also looks for the expansion of markets and different supports and anti-predator mechanisms on the fishing grounds, at some point, the reality will be there's either going to be something done or continually nothing done, and then then what? You know, I know inshore harvesters, I know many people in the province, and the Bob Hardys of the world, others, they want to see some action on this front. CNL, FFAW, whoever. But at some point, does it become banging our heads against the wall? And you know, what role does the private sector play into ensuring that there is indeed a market so we can expand and actually still, uh, pardon me, to take the quota, period. I'll stick with Ottawa for a second. You know, the evasiveness of Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland and Minister Bill Blair, when the Senate is trying to investigate or to evaluate how and why, not only what went down the streets of Ottawa with the convoy, but government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. The Minister of Public Safety, uh, Mendocino, Marco Mendocino, he pretty much simply lied. He wasn't misunderstood. He lied when he said that police had requested the Emergencies Act. And it's not true. Minister Bill Blair says there was no formal request, albeit law enforcement looking for additional supports in dealing with the two uh, blockades at the border crossings and, yes, what was happening in Ottawa. But they're kind of tiptoeing and dancing around it. So we were told one law enforcement requested it, and now we know for sure that's not true. But the government, I mean, this was the first time in history it had been invoked. So a comprehensive deep dive into why, exactly why, and who was involved in the formal final decision making. But we're not getting too far with that committee hearings, but we don't very, very often get very far with any of these types of things. But Mendocino lied. People are asking, asking, asking for him to step down, but don't hold your breath, I don't imagine. And remarkably, you know, so as of June the 20th, the federal government will be what they call temporarily suspending vaccine mandates for federally, federally regulated industries workers and for domestic travel, planes and trains. It's about time, as far as I can tell. I would have thought it would have been a little better received by folks who have been really quite vocal about the need for it to go away. For some, it feels like they've lost something to be mad about or to complain about. And so they're still piling on. I mean, what what does settle or solve some of these concerns? Now, if it's the wording of temporarily, all right, but it's going away. I thought that's what people wanted or what some people wanted. Certainly folks who are not vaccinated, that's what they wanted. And the definition remains at two doses uh, or one dose of J&J. Now, if that changes, then we've got ourselves a different issue to broach. But it's going away as of the 20th of June. You want to take it on? Let's go. We are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Time for a tune. Let's go back to 1974. For the second straight week on the adult charts was the Canadian legend Gordon Lightfoot with Sundown. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Sarah. You're on the air. 
Good morning, Peggy. How are you this morning? I'm doing well, thanks. How about you? I'm, I'm good, thank you. Listen, I got concerns involved. I got concerns involving around um, the new way we have to, um, we have to contact um, um, mental health mental health services. I have I am diagnosed with um, a couple of conditions. Uh, mental health conditions and I don't like the way um, now that if um, we're experiencing mental health crisis that we have to call 811 um, I was only there some time ago I had to call 811 because I was having um, concerns about my mental health and I was and I had to go through a couple of different options before I could speak to somebody and could, before I could speak to somebody and then I was put and then I was put on hold and I was just concerned I was just concerned because uh, you know being put on hold even for that five minutes can be crucial to anybody who's experiencing mental health crisis Sarah uh, I haven't called 811 for that purpose nor have I ever called the, the crisis line so when you call what was formerly the mental health crisis line, was there ever an opportunity where you were put on hold, or how did it work when you called the old system? Never. There was never. We never had to be put on. We never had to be put on hold. You just called the number, and yes, it might have taken a little while, while um, for somebody to pick up. But you were usually connect. You were connected. Not usually. You were connected to somebody right away. And so now, um, now calling now calling eight one eight one one. You know, you have to go to an option. You know, saying you have to pick. I think it was number one or number two, saying if it's a mental health and addiction. Um, if it's something calling for mental health and addictions, you have to you have to press number one or two. And then last time I called, I was put on hold. I was put on hold for at least five or six minutes. And you know, for somebody who's going through like complete crisis, that five or six like I said, that five or six minutes could be absolutely crucial. You know, you don't know what they could do in that five or six minutes. I can understand that concern. You know, when we had the minister on to talk about this. He said that, you know, it would be very quickly prioritized mental health or addictions uh, related calls and someone should be spoken with or, or helped very quickly. Five or six minutes can indeed feel like an eternity when you're in a crisis situation. Uh, let me just ask this, and this is just a, a question. One of the upsides that some people have uh, talked about on this front is that, for instance, if you haven't been someone who has called the old mental health crisis number repeatedly, maybe just knowing that uh, we all know in our mind that an emergency, 911. For now, for a mental health crisis, 811. It's a number where people should be able to not have to go search for any additional help. And so maybe even saving some of that anxiety and time, even for something as fundamental as getting a number in front of you, people think that might be an upside. Do you think that can be helpful to anybody? Oh, I, I, oh, oh, de oh, definitely for sure. For somebody who hasn't called, call, you know, something that hasn't called, called before, you know, definitely for sure. You know, it's only a short, it's only a short, not quick number that you know anybody can anybody can call, um, anybody can call. But you know, you know, where you know somebody was used to like getting those service, getting those services. You know, they usually, like me, for example. I knew the I, I knew the number right away. I knew their number right away, um, right away, right away. And you know, it was it's very tough, you know, being put on hold and being you know left waiting, mm -hmm. knowing when you know you are actually going to talk to someone. When in the old number, when in the old number, you know, you got to talk to somebody right away. There was no being put on hold. You didn't have to go through any other kinds of options beforehand. It was just. Yes, somebody was picked up, and yes, they were on the phone right, right away to, way to some, 
to somebody. And so, you know, my, you know, my biggest concern is, you know, not for myself in particular, but because I know my mental health conditions and I know, I know me myself you know quite well but you know for somebody who's experiencing that time time you know being put on hold being put on hold is, is crucial and you know it mm-hmm. seems like the other the old the old system was a lot more in my opinion a lot more a lot better you know it was i understand I, I absolutely yeah. do understand once you got to speak with somebody did you get the type of help and support that you needed Oh, definitely so. Yes, for sure. I'm not. I'm not knocking. I'm not knocking anybody over. I'm not knocking anybody over there. And you know, they were very good and they did their jobs quite well and that kind of thing. Um, but you know, it's kind of like nerve wracking too. You know, when you're experiencing so much anxiety and every and everything else. You know, if I, I know they're all trained, trained professionals and that kind of thing. But you know, if you are talking to the correct person, or you know somebody you know you talk to somebody and they you talk to somebody and they say to you um well we can't get you to talk to somebody somebody right now but let let this person let this you know professional this let's per- person call you back call you back in the next five minutes or so mm-hmm. and that's what happened to me last last time and i said you know any like anybody at all like if they're experiencing crisis anybody could at all like if they're waiting around for somebody to call them back they could do anything they could do anything in that allotted amount of time sarah do you have access to uh some long-term care for your mental health concerns yes you now, do i'm gonna Yes, I do. Now okay. I'm going to say I do see a psychiatrist right regularly every six weeks, and I am I am on the waiting list to receive therapy. Um, but for me to uh, uh, therapy, and I have been in and out of hospital because of my mental health. Um, but for but for me, you know that number that you know the old crisis line number you know it was great because it was just one phone call and somebody was on the phone with you right away understood and- uh, you know what I, I will do sarah because this it sounds like it's not working as seamlessly as we thought it might or should when we heard no. from minister Haggie uh, initially when this was you know the crisis number was blended into 811 so i will absolutely follow up see if we can get some information about you know what average wait time would be and why there's a wait time required here as opposed to as quick as possible if not immediately be able to speak with someone while you're in a situation oh. that's a crisis for you would you like to say anything else this morning sarah yeah, um, well, Patty, I know like everything. I know everything like takes a little bit of time to of time to work out the kinks and every and everything else. Like everything, you know, everything is you know does take take time, take time. But you know, waiting around for somebody to call you, like I said, waiting around for somebody to call you back when your experience is crisis is just it's just really not good enough. And you know, something else needs something else needs to be done. And and so you know, they thought switching over would probably be easier for people but you know just having that number just having that number there having that number there and to call to call and having somebody pick up right away so you're not waiting around right it's is crucial you know it's really crucial understood and we will do some follow-up and see what else we can glean and yes uh, it might have some positive upsides but we've got to get it right you know times of the essence it can't be you know working the kinks out we don't have that kind of time when something as important as what you were calling for the help and support you needed that day i'm glad you made time for us uh, sarah so stay tuned and stay in touch Thanks. Thank you so much, Patty. Take care. I appreciate you taking my call this morning. Anytime. Talk to you. Okay, take care. All right. Bye, Sarah.
yeah, we'll do some follow-ups there so we can get some data as to how it's working and, you know, maybe some of the hiccups that are keeping people potentially on hold for five or six minutes. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Peggy's in the queue. She wants to talk about bike trails, biking more popular than ever. The bike shops have been busy, but of course, they need a place to ride safely. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Peggy. You're on the air. Hi, good morning. Um, how are you today, Patty? I'm doing okay. Thank you for asking. How about you? Oh, I'm great. Good. Um, yeah, I'm a first-time caller. I'm a little bit nervous, but I know there's no need to be. You just take um, your time. I'm, I'm just uh, really concerned. Lately, I've acquired myself an electric bike, and with all this, you know, going green and looking at the environment and everything, I thought it was a great idea, plus the uh, price of gas. I'm a senior citizen on a fixed income, so, you know, it was a win-win in all situations. Uh, but I do find that as I'm out riding, there are very few bike lanes, you know. So for the first month, I've been driving around my neighborhood and, you know, try to get my hour, hour and a half bike ride in. Um, but the other day, I went out on the main road, and uh, it was it was very, very scary. And, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be very many... Uh, bike lanes in the city and I did a little bit of research last night and apparently according to uh, Adrian House uh, he had an article in September 2021 that St. John's is the worst cycling city in Canada and uh, you know with the pandemic uh, also Canary Cycles uh, the last two years were the busiest years since they've been in business so there's a lot of bikes out there that's topic number one and then the second one is uh, when when I do get the nerve to go out on my bike out of my you know subdivision area, um, like to go to the supermarket, uh, there's nowhere to park my bike. You know, very few places have bike bike places. You know, the bike racks, I guess you call them, mm-hmm. to put your bikes in. And you know, like I would, you know, I don't feel comfortable uh, hooking it onto a telephone pole or a pole. It's an expensive bike, and even if it wasn't any bike, you know, if people want to start using them, it would be nice if businesses could put their, uh, you know, lock their bikes up and know maybe there's a camera there watching to deter somebody from stealing it. So I don't know if um, you have any suggestions. I guess write my council member. Well, the council has worked towards it. I mean, even some of the bike lanes that they put in in the past were in kind of strange spots. You know, <laughs> not really the main thoroughfare for a bicyclist that we, you know, that you would think about depending on what part of town you live in. Some of the places where they would absolutely be very, very helpful are in some of the tighter, more congested streets. So I don't know how they accommodate because these streets can't be widened. You know, you think of some of the uh, the downtown inner city streets, and I don't know what they do. But the council ran into a massive roadblock when there was the thought of creating shared trails. So we have extraordinary walking trails. And so whether it be accessibility issues for folks with mobility problems and or a wheelchair or what have you, and yes, maybe for some people who don't want to take their chances on the city streets or in and around this area and just be able to ride on a trail. The pushback was enormous, and I don't know if it's ever going to get off the ground. But businesses can be very bike-friendly, but they're very fundamental offering of a bike rack. And I can think of a few that absolutely have them. You know, and the ability to take public transit and put your bike on the bike carrier on the on the back of the bus. Things that just make sense because if it's going to be a viable option, and it obviously is, and there's more and more cyclists out there than ever before, not because I say so, but because the bike shops are reporting sales uh, at that level. So suggestions, I don't know. But let me ask you a couple of questions. Uh, I 
don't have an e-bike, but are you able to travel on your e-bike in and around the rate of speed that the cars would in some of the, you know, the areas where it's 50, not on the parkway or on the outer ring road or whatever? What kind of speed can you ride those bikes in? I think you can get it up to probably 20 kilometers an hour, yeah. I don't, or maybe 25. Uh, I don't, you know, I prefer about 15 or so when, you know, when I'm in an area like that. Sure because, you know, I'm afraid it may fall or whatever. But, yes, you you can go fairly fast on them. You know, when you're going uphill, they're fantastic. Uh, you know, it's a fantastic bike. You know, we talk about electric cars. You know, even on the bike trails, uh, you know, there's shops in that. But then where, where do you plug in your bike? Sure. Another good question. You know, when I see a young fellow yesterday, as a matter of fact, uh, coming down the hill on Torbay Road, say, between... Um, Newfoundland Drive and McDonald Drive, and he was zipping along on his electric scooter, and he was flying down the hill. Maybe gravity had played a role in that one, but he was zipping around pretty good. No helmet on either, which kind of struck me. So, I mean, the city is obviously terrible for bike, bicycles and bicyclists. Uh, in other parts of the country, they have designated bike lanes as far as the eye can see. They have some shared trail options just alongside of the road itself. That would be pedestrians on one side of the blue line, bikes on the other side of the blue line. Works well. Elsewhere, we do have an issue with the way that this confusing old city is set up uh the windy roads and the very tight roads in some parts of the city but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do more to accommodate safe cycling yeah like in my neighborhood we have um uh, it could be used as a cycling but cars park there and that's fine you know because it's a subdivision but what about if you know during the day they will you know let's keep that opened even even certain hours, let's keep that open for for bikers, you know. So I could know I I know from two to four, I can go out and this parking lane could be mine for you know to ride my bike safely. It'd yeah. be great if people played along with some of these suggestions, but you know we might find ourselves in a place of a false sense of security, thinking that well, it's the bikers' world from two to four because the motoring public is <laughs> less than accommodating to the pedestrians and or the cyclists or the scooter riders or what have you. Unfortunately, so Peggy, I'm glad you're enjoying your e-bike. I wish there was expanded opportunities to enjoy it outside your subdivision safely. Yeah. Yeah, and I just, you know, I, I'd love to hear from other other people what they do. Um, I know my e-bike can be folded up, put in my car, and I could take it to a trail, but unfortunately I'm not strong enough to lift it, put it into my car. Oh, my. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. But I just wanted to express my views, and, and hopefully people who have bikes maybe write a letter to the city council and if we all band together, maybe something will be done a little faster than if we all just complain to ourselves. I'm glad you made time for the show, Peggy. Thank you. Okay, okay thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. And Lloyd says he just got back from Toronto, great city for biking. That's pretty good. I mean, the ultimate, of course, is when you go all the way to the west coast of the country. Vancouver and the outdoor lifestyle, some, some of this is a mindset, isn't it? Because there's a distinct difference in the outdoorish lifestyle that you see in British Columbia versus what you see certainly in this province and other parts of Atlantic Canada, I would suggest some of its weather, right? No doubt about it. But the accommodations that they make, whether it be in the Stanley Parks of the world or even alongside some major thoroughfares, bikes are accommodated. They really are. Now, is it possible to replicate the biking scene of Vancouver, B.C. to, say, for instance, just St. John's or any other major center in this province? 
not as easy as it, as it sounds, but it is certainly is pretty dodgy out there for the bicyclists. Every time one of the boys goes for a spin on their bike, I get a bit nervous, but I guess that's just the way I am. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, the opposition critic for Health and Community Services, the PC member for Topsail Paradise, is Paul Din, wants to talk about seniors care. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Second one to the PC member for Topsail Paradise. He's the shadow minister for Health and Community Services. That's Paul Din. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just want to call in, uh, uh, you know, in light of uh, the recent situation with the uh, the elderly gentleman who was waiting to uh, get in long-term care and who was spending time in the uh, emergency room. Um, those two, that couple, they're, they're constituents of mine. They're a lovely couple. Uh, I've dealt with them many times uh, through council, M- MHA, and uh, you know, I find it un- uh, unfortunate the situation that they went through, uh, but the issue around here is that it's not uh, it's not uncommon. Uh, you know, it was only recently uh, I dealt with another couple that were married 70 plus years and were separated uh, due to their different levels of care. And uh, in this province, of course, uh, we have an aging population, and uh, the number of people over 65 has more than doubled in the last 30 years. So, so it's an issue. Our demographics are clear, and, and we need to start doing stuff to uh, to help with our seniors. And and when you hear seniors say, and I think uh, Miss, Mrs. Hall said uh, her, her greatest fear for health care right now is that the elderly are not important. Uh, I mean, that's indicative of, of a sense that's out there. Uh, people have a sense of despair. Uh, they're looking for a voice. Uh, they're looking for people to stand up and uh, and speak for them, and to uh, to ensure they are treated the way they should be treated in their golden years. And uh, when we look at the health accord, and hopefully the implementation plan will be out soon, uh, that talks about aging in place. It talks about the value of family care, and it talks about giving seniors autonomy, choice and respect and dignity. Yeah, and programs for the frail elderly, which we yeah. don't have in place. No. Uh, just for context here, yep. this is something I try to broach uh, fairly regularly here on the shows. You know, we've seen what happens when you wait too long to address yeah. problems. For instance, even just the doctor shortage or nursing vacancies, this has been happening right in front of our face. I mean, this just didn't come out of nowhere. We knew it was coming, and it's here. And I government has tried to make take some steps to try to alleviate the problem. But in the world, say just in, for instance, dementia, the information coming from CIHI, the Canadian Institute of Health Information, is unbelievably clear. The numbers of Canadians with dementia will continue to rise 68% 68 over the next 20 years. So there is no time to wait to prepare. So whether it be plans to age in place and supports for the home, whether it be long-term care facilities that offer the safe, secure, dignified surroundings for patients with dementia, the things that we know are coming, we have to prepare for today. And whether that's part of Health Accord and their blueprint that's, I assume, coming out next week, these numbers will not change. They are a stark wake-up call to be prepared for what is happening right now. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, there, and, and, and this information was known years ago, actually, you know, and uh, you look at some programs. I mean, the uh, government at the time in 2012 actually brought in a, a close-to-home strategy for, for, for dealing with their elderly, for providing them what they need in their, in, their, in their golden years. And, in fact, one of the programs that came in back then was a paid family caregiving option, yeah. which, which allowed for family members to be at home. And may, maybe, maybe now in the short term, maybe we need to tweak that program to, to help these individuals, you know, an individual like Mr. Hall, maybe we could have had someone at home with him and uh, free up a bed 
in emergency and make sure that that individual is getting the best uh, love and treatment he can he or she can uh, until they're waiting to get the the uh, proper uh, care that they need uh, there's ways around this and of course better communication is one because uh, it's unfortunate to read that uh, they were fearful of losing their spot on the long-term care list if they moved up into a, up into a room so communication needs to be there uh, uh, we need to look at you know what can we do right now like I said, that care at home program, maybe they need to tweak that. Uh, certainly not staff staff problem here because the staff are doing the best they can with what they have. And we know our frontline health care workers are overworked. But when you've got individuals who, who their only option is to go into the emergency room and, and, and take up a bed there, and then probably move up to another floor and take up another bed when when we could be utilizing that to a better better uh, use and uh, have our seniors at home uh, you know, uh, spending their time with loved ones. Well, I mean, not every family has the capacity to do that, but some absolutely do and would like to do exactly that. So it brings up an interesting point is that it's not just programs and policies to uh, – deal with and to help people who have developed dementia, but also for the families that care for them. There's a big support network out there, but more and more people that may choose to age in place, to stay at home, you're going to need supports for those family caregivers because I know one person in particular who's actually doing it right now, and it's had a devastating impact on this person. It really has, and you can see they're wearing it on their face, and so they need help too. So this becomes a very, not necessarily complicated uh, issue, but it's one that we got to take the various angles make sure we address them all because you can't just satisfy one part of it and uh, annoy or pardon me ignore the others because then we just create a different problem down the line for a different set of people so yeah. anyway I'll give you the last word Paul. No you're absolutely right and you know we're not getting any younger our population is getting older uh, I'm in the age group where most of my aunts uncles my parents are you know uh, my mother and that you know they're in the 80 plus category and uh, we're seeing it you know I, I know people who are dealing with issues with their with their loved ones and trying to get them the help and care that they need and I think we need to look at it now uh, and do some action right now and there, there are some short-term issues that we can address to help us transition into whatever the health accord brings out in their imp- implementation plan but seniors matter and we got to uh, we got to do what we can for them appreciate the time this morning Paul thank, thank you thank you Patty all the best take care bye-bye okay. it's Paul Din the PC member for Topsail Paradise okay before we get news we got time for more in line to Roz, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Patty. I, I'm just uh, worried about um, the children that are going to fall, uh, be, you know, through the cracks that are having reading problems and math problems, and their and their parents can't afford a tutor to help the children out. You know, if the government probably hired a few students to go to a library and help these children in the summer, you know, it might be a, a good idea. You know, there's some support inside schools, like for older students that will read with younger students. I think it's a good way to, you know, take away some of the mystique or the worry about the big kids versus the small kids. And it probably does help with learning and the want to learn how to read. That's where I think, you know, getting off to the right start with early childhood education, it's proven. You look at anywhere that does it right, and the reading and comprehension skills is clear a benefit for early childhood. But you're right, there's going to be some learning loss here based on the third-year pandemic education in the K-12 system. I don't know how many people are as you put it, falling through the cracks, but I'm sure there's going to be some out there that we're going to need some additional help with reading, writing, and arithmetic. 
Yeah, because uh, like I said, I know some of the working poor, and and they ha- they can't take the time off to even help their children. You know, they got to work every hour they can get, and to help. So they need help. You know, and, and and like I said, if there's things out there like a, a library that they can go to, you know, it, it'd be nice for someone to announce that or and let them know where you can go to get this help. If you want to pay for tutoring, it's a fairly expensive initiative, not available to all. I don't know of any programs that are offered by, for instance, the public library system or other groups free of charge or very cost efficient. I don't really know, to be honest with you, Ross. Okay. Uh, you know, I can find uh, out. Probably the, and probably the government should think about something like that, you know, because there's a lot of students out there could use a, a few dollars during the, the summertime, and if they're, um, you know, paid a little bit of money to help children out, uh, that would probably be a great idea, you know? Certainly, it's in all of our collective best interests if we have a well-educated population. We do have a literacy problem here in this province, adults included, and that's long been understood, but I don't know how much has ever been done to address it. Uh, I appreciate the time. You want to say anything else before we no, go to no, the news, Ross? Um, if you have uh, so many interesting topics, Patty, you know, um, and I really, really want to thank you so much for everything you do um, to help people out, you know? I appreciate the call and the kind words. Thanks a lot, Ross. Thank you very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break from the newscast. When we come back, Janice, I believe, lives over on Bell Island. And Friday might be the last day for Dr. A.R. and his stay on Bell Island. We'll see what Janice has to say about that and anything else right after the news. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back. Let's go to line number seven. Janice, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Hi. Patty. Good morning. My name is Janet, and I I am a first-time caller, so I'm pretty nervous. (laughs) Just one second. Your name is Janet? Janet. Okay, sorry. I said Janice. My apologies. That's okay. That's okay. Again, yes, I do want to talk about the situation here on the island with Dr. A.R. There's a lot of very concerned citizens here on the island that in two short days we are going to lose our family doctor. And as been said before, Dr. A.R. is just not like a family doctor. He's like a friend to many. And if you're lucky enough to have this man for a doctor, he becomes your family. So I just want to say with that, the last week we had put out very quickly, we put together a citizen petition petition that was hand-delivered to Mr. Kenneth Beard by Mr. Ken Kavanagh. And again, thank you, Ken, for doing that. On that petition, in three short days, we had 1,017 signatures. People were anxious to come out to sign the signature. They were happy to do it. And I guess in some small way, it was their way to get their voices and their concerns heard. They, they, this, and, and this small gesture showed, showed the respect that they have for this doctor and the concern that they have and that they want him to stay. And he wants to stay. Doctors are not exactly lining up to come over to this island unless government are paying out X amount of dollars for them to do it. Um, I, like, he wants to stay. Like, he's been here for eight years, and he's developed roots here. He loves it. So, Patty, I don't, I don't know what the issues are, but I know that I hear government and Eastern Health on the news every day talking about wanting to recruit and retain doctors. 
So I think it's time for the government, Eastern Health, to put the words into actions and do whatever it does to take to retain this fine doctor for this community. Yeah, my understanding is Dr. A.R. simply wants to work on a schedule that he determines for himself. Yeah. He doesn't want to be on weekends, doesn't want hospital privileges possibly or something like that. And he just wants to work Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, or whatever the hours of operations that he suggested. And apparently that doesn't jibe with Eastern Health. But yeah. here's where I would come yeah. down on this one, mm-hmm. yeah. is if it's good enough and it's an acceptable uh, framework for the residents of Belle Island and it's something yeah. that Dr. Ayer is w- willing to work in and under, yeah. it's better than no doctor. Patty, like, if that is the issue, and I, and, I, and I can say because I honestly don't know, but if that is the issue, if, 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 like, if it is a scheduling issue, our premier as a doctor should be fully aware that one doctor for a community cannot be the all. He cannot be the full-time clinic clinical doctor daily and be on call nights and weekends like he he can got to come home from work during the day and then you got to be thinking on your mind now am I going to get a call in I can have one call I can have two calls I can have 10 calls and those calls can be anywhere from a toothache to a massive heart attack to losing somebody's life in front of your eyes I mean like that's crazy I mean doctors are human they need time for personal life and they need time to unwind so if that's the reason why you're having trouble retaining doctors, I think that should be one of the first things that we looked at on the list of retaining doctors. Right? Well, yeah, I think and it's, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, th- and that's one of the considerations that I would imagine doctors would have, period, mm. is, you know, there is a balance that we're all striving for in this world between life and professional commitments and a bit of free time and family time and downtime. Mm-hmm. So if Dr. A.R. thinks he's arrived at that stage in his life where he'd like a bit more downtime mm-hmm. and we can't get anyone else to go to Bell Island. I don't know what the status is of the recruiting effort for Bell Island or anywhere else in this province, but, you know, some flexibility might be helpful. Do we open Pandora's box and all of a sudden doctors everywhere are only willing to work on their own schedule with their own uh, wants and needs to be attended to versus what the regional health authorities need and want from doctors? I don't know. I suppose that would be the consideration being made here is if there's this accommodation made, then you know full well. The Dr. AR model will be very quickly adopted by physicians in different parts of the province. Whether that's good or bad or indifferent, I don't know. I just imagine that would be the outcome. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I don't know what all the the issues are, and I don't know what all the issues I just know that in two short days, we are not going to have a doctor here. And he, we have, and I know, I know every community wants their doctor, and every community deserves a doctor. But you know what? They're probably not there, and why they're not there, I don't know. But you know what? We have one that wants to stay. So you would think that, you know what? Okay, like you said, let's give a little. Let's give this community this doctor. That, that's all. That's all I want to say. And you know what? I want to say that I don't think not only from me, but from those 1,017 signatures on that petition, everybody has the same concern. And I just want the government to sit, you know, just to listen, to listen, really. I hear from community leaders across the province about what they're doing, what they're taking on on their own accord, as opposed yes. to simply waiting for the government or the health authorities mm-hmm. to bring in additional doctors. I know there was a big yes. effort made by Mr. Kavanaugh and others with the quote-unquote grant seduction for Dr. Yeah. A.R. to come back. Are, is there anything else like that in the works? What plans do you know of on Bell Island to deal with this issue? I have. I, I don't know. Okay, I know Ken's going to call on Friday, he I told me. Don't. So oh, I can ask yes, him. Yeah. Yeah. Ken will probably definitely be. But I just wanted to get my voice heard, and I wanted to mention that there are, like, every person on this island, and, you, you know, every person on this island has the same concerns. And, and, and the issue, I think, 
needs to be looked after. <laughs> no arguments here. I appreciate the time, Janet. All Thanks right, for I the call. I just also want to say, add one thing. I did listen to to a call uh, on Monday with a caller with Tim was on the line mm-hmm. from a doctor, a Dr. John Kilty. And as a perspective, I found his conversation very interesting because uh, from a doctor's perspective, he, as a doctor in his travels, has come across, again, like you say, doctors and, and future doctors that want to come to Canada and they want to practice and they want to and they want to train. But for some reason, whatever is in the works, they're not allowed to do it. Now, I don't understand what that is, but I think it's a sad situation. Yeah, I don't know if Tim spoke with him. I spoke with Dr. Kilty as, as well. But Yes, Tim spoke with Dr. Kilty, I think, on Monday. Okay, great. Um, The issue there, there's uh, credentials issues, accreditations, and how quickly they can or cannot be transferred here to the country. We've got to figure that out. Mm. Because if there's doctors willing to come, because, you know, graduating from Munns Med School, Mm. great, but if I'm a graduate of the University of Munich or Barcelona or Dublin, goodness gracious, I must have the adequate training as an MD. So, and even some of the provincial barriers are completely unnecessary. You know, we've got doctors willing to come to a locum. I spoke with a doctor whose father originally came to this problem from province from Sri Lanka, set up shop out in Central, stayed here for decades. The daughter has been here doing a locum, would like to come more often, but she said that the issue with paperwork and time and cost means not doing it anymore. That can't be the case. That's true. Yeah, we've got to figure that out too. Huh? Yes, and, and that's what I mean. And and maybe that what that maybe maybe some of these issues are the issues and why doctors don't want to stay. Maybe it is the scheduling issues and maybe it is a lack of respect. I don't know what they are. Mm. I, I would imagine they're varied. You know, if, yes. if I have a young family, amenities and opportunities for my partner and my children, yes. maybe the well, relationship. You know and, yeah. and yes, and, and, and you know what, and I know it seems a lot, but that, that's not a lot to be asking for. And if you've got somebody that's coming to a remote, con- a remote community especially, they should be given a little bit of a leeway with those things if those things are what they need. I agree with you, Janet. Nice to have you on the show. And thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Take All care. right. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, just keep going. Line number one. Bevan, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Morning to you. I um, heard you uh, had a, a caller yesterday who spoke about the Ontario election, and uh, he, he spoke about 40% voter turnout at, at the provincial level. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that in Newfoundland, it's a challenge uh, to get people out to vote, especially at the municipal level. Um, but, you know, our Municipal Election Act, uh, it actually acts to uh, uh, impose voter suppression on people. The, the Act says a person shall not vote in more than one municipality on Election Day. And then there's a fairly convoluted process to establish uh, where your principal residence is. What is so that on. voter suppression? Why should anyone get to vote in multiple municipal elections? Well, uh, let's walk through it. That's a good question. Um, We're seeing a democratic shift, uh, a demographic shift here here in the province, um, uh, in the sense that uh, a lot of people who live in the greater St. John's area have summer homes, cabins, whatever. Uh, Many of these are, are in rural communities. Uh, in some of these communities, uh, you, you're, you're looking at uh, uh, 30, 40, and some of them uh, probably 50% of the residents are, are seasonal or, or part-time uh, dwellers. If you're in a municipality, you pay municipal taxes. Uh, you pay municipal taxes in two places. So if, if you're a taxpayer 
why can't you be a voter? If you're a taxpayer in two places, why can't you be a voter in two places? Yeah, I know people are able to say, for instance, in some cabin country, which is unincorporated areas, and mm. maybe in an LSD, or maybe in a place like Deer Park, where you it's very similar to paying like a condo fee for road right. upkeep and for garbage pickup, which is convoluted as well. But <clears throat> I suppose if I'm living in an incorporated municipality with my summer home, mm. uh, the opportunity to vote, uh, so be it. I think this is well established, so even on provincial and federal uh, sides, that primary residents will always rule the roost. Whether or not that's the right play, I'm not sure. But that's been the case <clears throat> forever and a day. Because I could, for instance, have a condo because I work frequently in Toronto. But I don't yeah. get to vote in Toronto because my primary residences in St. John's. So, and the same thing goes for provincial elections. I can have a home where I spend a, a lot of my time in Steadybrook, but my primary residence in St. John's, so I get to vote in St. John's, but I get where you're coming from. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I can understand uh, at a, a federal or provincial level, uh, a person shouldn't be entitled to essentially more votes than another person um, just because they, they, they own property in different yeah. places. But at the municipal level, uh, there's really no overlap or, or, or conflict between uh, uh, me being able to vote here in St. John's, which, you know, one of the good things in this city is that uh, uh, you've got a week-long process and you can do it by mail. Um, so why would I not, if I'm paying taxes in one of those communities, uh, you know, and, and I'm a, an active uh, member of the community involved in some volunteer activities, uh, you know, it's it's you look at it from the viewpoint of there's an issue or something comes up and then you realize, hey, uh, if I want to have my voice heard, is, is the municipal council going to listen to me? Uh, I'm a taxpayer, but I'm not a voter. And to me, that's really uh, what we got. And I, I'm not sure the logic behind this. I tried to, to look at the, um, the background material on the government's website, but there really isn't anything that explains uh, uh, what, the, what the rationale is here. And what I'm getting at is that, that there, you know, there's municipalities are challenged. They're challenged now to have people um, in the community, get growth in the community and so on. And in many of the communities in, in the Avalon uh, Peninsula area, uh, the, the growth is occurring uh, with, with basically people like myself, the people who are buying or building uh, uh, part-time residences and, and becoming involved in the community. Uh, and here you've got a lot of these communities that really challenge to get people to, to, to run uh, for council or to even get them to, to vote. So to, to, to my way of looking at it, uh, the, the, the realities have shifted and changed. And I'm just wondering, you know, when looking at things from a, a fairness and justice uh, perspective, uh, why shouldn't I be allowed to, if I'm a taxpayer in a municipality, and I'm a taxpayer in more than one municipality, why should I not at least have the, the, the right to be not only a taxpayer, but a, but a voter? Well, I assume the rationale uh, is the same thing they do in the provincial and federal elections, but uh, I get the point. I don't know how you manage that. For instance, if I own... If I own a rental property in Mount Pearl, one in CBS, my primary residence is in St. John's, I have a cabin out in Terranova, and mm. another spot out in Steadybrook, should I be able to vote five times? Because there's guaranteed people in that situation. I know property owners that own properties in several communities on the Northeast Avalon. Yeah. I wonder how that mm. would work. 
A, a good point, uh, and I agree. I mean, there's a difference between being a, being a resident part-time or full-time and perhaps being a landlord. And, and yeah, at one point, I, I had, I too, I had a place in the city book. I got a, a, a place uh, out around the bay here on the Avalon, and, and I, I live in St. John's. But uh, to, to me, the... Uh, uh, the the trigger that's there, or the the limit that's there, uh, has a negative effect, and uh, you know I, I I just feel that that policy should be looked at, especially when you look at what's happening in the, in the rural communities in, in this province, and uh, you know we we've got challenges for those communities to. Uh, to survive. Mm-hmm. That we do. I appreciate the, the topic. I hadn't given it a whole lot of thought, but maybe I will now that we've spoken about it. <laughs> well, I know you need another item on your list of issues to deal with. So. Never ending. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, thanks very much. I, I love your show. Thanks a lot, Evan. Appreciate the time. Bye. Take good care. Bye. That's an interesting question. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Tim wants to pick up on the conversation regarding the bike trails, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Tim. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? No, pretty good, pretty good. It was uh, lovely to hear from Peggy earlier. Um, you know, one of the things I think it's great about this, the high price of gas, which is hard to say anything great about it, is a lot of people are really getting into cycling, and, and the e-bikes are really helping a lot of people out, especially uh, like like Peggy. She said she was a senior citizen. Um, and with the hills we have here, I'm sure all of us have a hard time walking off them, let alone on our bikes. Um, however, I did want to chat, and I, you, you, made, you men, made a mention of the resistance um, to kind of the grand concourse, I guess. I believe that was where the way you were referencing where the city was looking at um, widening it in some parts uh, for a bit of a pilot project, and there was a lot of kind of pushback. Yeah, just selected um, areas on that particular grand concourse trail. That's right. Yeah, and I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of people that make arguments that, you know, the city is difficult the way it's laid out and all that, and it's, it's true. Putting bike lanes on our roads is a bigger project than I think a lot of us want to admit, especially as cyclists. You know, we'd like to have it. Um, but the Grand Concourse is something like 300 kilometers or something, I think, of, of pathways that can get you around the city fairly efficiently um, without having to go near the road with the dangerous and uh, dangerous roads. I mean, I, I bike commute sometimes to work from the West End into Kitty Bitty Gut, and I've been nearly struck by buses, by cars, by trucks uh, numerous times, um, you know, just in that short section between the railway museum and uh, Kitty Bitty Village. Um, you know, and, and the pushback is something that fascinates me. I don't really understand the basis of it. Um, I lived in Calgary for the last five years. Um, there's over a thousand kilometers of shared pathway there. Um, now it is a, it is a flatter, you know, bigger city and more laid out for that. Um, but to say that there's, you know, it's it's not. I've, I've heard arguments from people in Facebook groups, uh, from some you know slightly well-known people, I think, uh, around the city and stuff about danger and getting you know pedestrians worried about getting hit by cyclists and and things like that and in in my experience and my limited research i'll be honest i didn't do any kind of study major study on it but um the the risk of being hit by by a cyclist on a shared pathway is infinitely less than getting struck by a vehicle when you're out on the road in the winter here uh or even road roadway accidents um and i can't really 
figure out the basis. I don't know if you've got any more information on that. Well, I don't have... Um, have why people feel that way. I haven't compiled any data. I guess the anecdotal concern would be that some people on the bicycles, and some of these paths are fairly winding, could be flying along, and you might be, you know, have your dog whose leash co- extends right across the path, and or the child who's with you, carefree and reckless, or carefree, fancy-free, just maybe strolled off to the other side, knowing that there might be a bike coming. That's what they tell me. I don't know how what the potential is for these types of uh, collisions. But there are six portions, if I remember correctly, of the Grand Concourse where you're allowed to ride your bike. Uh, there's a couple of spots up by the Virginia River. There's one by the, up the Waterford River just past the, the old railway museum. There's part of Paradise around the, uh, the old rail bed. There's some bike, uh, cycling allowed there. But the expansion into some of the more used portions of the trail got that type of concern if it's real perceived i don't know i mean people who walk the trails all the time they'll have their own thoughts i did uh, encounter someone zipping along pretty good it's not on the grand concourse i like to have a stroll around kent's pond every now and then and there was one spot in particular where you just go across a bridge and there here comes a turn depending if you walk uh, clockwise or counterclockwise and the bike the two young fellas on their mountain bikes they were coming like bats out of hell and I didn't have an earbuds or anything, so I could hear them coming, so it was no problem for me. I wasn't afraid. They didn't almost hit me or nothing. But had I had the earbuds in, my head down in my phone, and right at the corner, and they were riding bar to bar, shoulder to shoulder, maybe, maybe that was a problem, but they were going cracked. If we could trust that everyone using the paths was going to be aware and mindful of the fact that there's others out there, young and old, walking, earbuds in, maybe not paying much attention, just enjoying the the fresh air. You know, if we knew that people would be very aware of their surroundings, then it should be be able to be done quite safely. But the pushback is real and the city councils find themselves at loggerheads with both sides. I don't know what's going to happen here. Yeah, I I mean... uh you know, I think you hit the nail on the head there with, with, you know, if we could get people informed and how to, how to do it. I think there's a huge education issue, um, you know, on both sides. And it's, it's, it's nobody's fault. We're not used to it. We're, we're not really built for that. And, you know, we are, I think you mentioned how there's a very large um, outdoor community in the west coast of Canada, um, which lends people to kind of pay more attention. They're more used to it. It's been around a longer time. Um, but I think general education is probably one of the biggest issues here. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, don't really understand kind of the um, non-anecdotal evidence or, or studies. And, you know, and having that information available to people, um, I think it goes a long way. I mean, I know that in this very active Facebook group that was petitioning against it, I got hauled into it because it was called St. John's Trail Users. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't actually titled you know, we don't want cyclists on the Grand Concourse, uh, which it turned into, which I found out very quickly getting some some negative feedback from the operators and administrators. Um, however, it, it, there was a study reference in somewhere like Bristol, England, where there was it was it was considered dangerous or there was a few accidents or something like that. But there's numerous, countless, uh, every so many years, studies done and, you know, reports on these types of injuries and these uses all across Canada um, on our own soil um, with these pathways. And, and quite frankly, the ones that I read out of Calgary um, in depth, there was very, very few. I think there was something in one year, there was 25 uh, or so pedestrian cyclist accidents. And that year, there was over 3 million users that used the trail. Um, it's relatively insignificant. Um, however, as you said, there is the risk. 
you know we can't we can't say there's not a risk there always is and education is important having space right widening it i think was one of the plans and i think a few that struck a nerve with some of the locals which i understand as well you know we, we like the nature and, and and making the pathways especially out here in uh, like Dorenny's mill area right there's not a whole lot of room you got the river and there's a lot of really old beautiful trees um and things like that we don't want to get rid of but i mean the education thing i mean calgary it's a, it's a bylaw that you have to have a bell right and it's also a law in there that you can't exceed 20 kilometers an hour and anywhere where it's winding and more um kind of complicated and things like that it's actually lowered to 10 kilometers an hour um those speed limits are there and you know maybe at that point it becomes a resourcing thing for the rnc uh, on their bike we might have to have you know bike patrol police kind of keeping an eye on that and doing that um who knows but you know i i just find it a very it's, it's discouraging, and I, I find it to be a weak argument that, that there, it's not something that we can do safely here. Well, we can do uh, anything. There isn't any... You know, yeah. change is hard. You know, it's like everything else. If this was done with all the consideration of bells and speed limits and all those types of things, and people were aware of the fact that they're not just sharing the path with their fellow pedestrians, and there might be some cyclists, before long, all hands would realize that we're sharing a trail, and I have to play my role to share the trail. And before long, it would feel like this has always been the way, but you know people are resistant to change for a variety of reasons whether or not there's you know exaggerations of risk or what have you i'll leave that up to the individual to assess for themselves <laughs> but if you yeah. if you made the change people would accommodate the change it might be a nuisance and you're going to have some frustrated people on either side for the short term but before long it would just be the same old thing mundane we know exactly what's going on i know what to expect when i take to my favorite portion of the grand concourse and life goes on but it's getting that first step towards the change that is sometimes unfortunately insurmountable yeah i can see that you know and i'm with you and i think like you know outside of that education for for drivers um i think is is very important we're not used to you know, driving with cyclists on the road, it is actually, I believe, I, I could be wrong in this, and I'm happy to be corrected, but I believe there is um, provisions in the uh, Highway Safety Act that uh, bicyclists or cyclists are, are to be given one meter of space um, on roadways and on highways and, and, you know, big motorways like that, I believe it's a meter and a half um, of space just so they can, up. I mean, your bike is hardly wired and it's, it's almost as wide as a meter, really, if you go across the handlebars. Um, anyway, um, but you know that's I think that's the biggest concern. I've had a fr- I've had two friends hit by um, buses, city buses, metro bus, hitting cyclists because Yikes. they're not paying attention, you know. And and uh, one of them had their had their child on the bike, you know. And it was lucky that they didn't get hurt, um, you know. And I almost got hit there in front of Bannerman Bannerman Brewing there uh, a couple of weeks ago, cutting down there. The bus went right through that stop sign, turning right onto Duckworth Street, and had to lock it up. And then gave me kind of a "What are you doing?" When I was riding my bike, you know, in, in the right-of-way lane, um, you know, and people parking and not paying attention, I, I think the drivers of the city being more informed and, and, you know, learning that we have to share the road, I think, would go a long way as well um, in helping promote that. Well, of course, education is probably the key in whatever we're talking about. Uh, there was a time, I don't know how many years ago it was now, I was riding my bike in between, say, Circular Road and Fountain Spray, and I was riding up on the, the proper side of the road, and Mrs. opened up her car door right in front of me. I had nowhere to go. I ran right into the car door, pigeoned myself in between the door jam and the door, the A-frame of the car. I was like, oh, my God. And she gave me nothing but grief. I had absolutely no chance, none. The door popped open right in front of me and into the car I go. But anyway, it's just a, a personal irrelevant yeah. tale. I appreciate the, the time, Tim. Door, <laughs> the door prize. This we call also, great reference. To, I appreciate you, Tom, as well. Great reference to the Fountain Spray store. <laughs> <laughs> my grandmother lived on Colonial Street on the corner. And she oh, yeah, cool. Forever. Right on. I love it. Good Thank man. you so much for your time today, Patty. And I, I hope we can get more cyclists and more people active in the process. 
province. God knows that we need it. Um, you know, being more fit is something Newfoundland could definitely use a lot of. Um, so thank you very much for the voice and uh, the opportunity. It's something I could use a lot more of. Thanks a lot, Tim. <laughs> okay, man. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a private member's bill being presented in the House of Commons today. It's Bill C-251, calling on the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans to talk about management plans for pinnipeds. That's, of course, sea lions, seals, walruses. Also talks about expanding markets, addressing trade barriers. The gentleman putting it forward is the Conservative Party of Canada member for Costa Bay Central Notre Dame, Clifford Small. He's in the queue. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. Welcome back to the program. Join us on line number three is the CPC member of Parliament elected in and serving the folks of Costa Bay's Central Notre Dame. This is Clifford Small. Good morning, Clifford. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm pretty good. Okay. I was calling you today, Patty. I uh, figured some people might want to hear from me. You might want to talk to me. We've got a bill, our vote coming up on Bill C-251, second reading, to uh, hopefully advance it into uh, into committees. Describe exactly what's entailed. I've seen the news reports. I've read about Bill C-251, but from the uh, private member who's offering the bill up for second reading today, what's in it? Uh the, the bill is to create a framework uh, to you know, address the trade barriers that have been placed there in our in our international markets uh, to uh, work with all stakeholders and indigenous communities across Canada to help form the framework uh, the bill the bill wants uh, Full utilization of our of our seal resource and and the sea lions uh, on the west coast and in the north. So uh, it's a it's a national bill. It's not just about Newfoundland, Labrador, or Atlantic Canada. It's about the north and our indigenous communities and and on the west coast and the impacts that predation has had on our fish stocks and the fact that our fish stocks continue to decrease and and won't recover with all the conservation measures that we've had. But we want to address it in a in a responsible ethical manner and uh, basically that's what it's all about patty and you know as reference to uh, an annual census of all the pinnipeds that would be the sea lion seals and walruses it also makes mention of anti-predator mechanisms around fishing grounds what are they i i, I didn't even know what that meant when i read it what is it okay so the anti-predator mechanism clause was put into the bill it's basically uh, there's technology in the world that can keep uh, sea, seals and sea lions out of fish farms. Now, that was a bone of contention, so I've offered to amend that out of the bill. It's no problem. That won't hurt the spirit of the bill. Um, and, this, and, it, and the same thing goes for the annual census. I mean, we, we've, we've had uh, very, very, I don't know what you'd call it, in terms of the uh, census being carried out over the years, it's very sporadic. For example, the hoods haven't been counted since 2015. So, uh, and we don't know how many harbor seals are in 3PS and all throughout uh, the rest of the Maritimes, and they're still listed under species at risk. So, that was that was what that was all about. But you know what? If my counterparts on the other side of the house don't like that, if it's actually sequestering funds, it can come right out of the bill in committee. That's what committee's for. And 
that bill was approved by Parliament of, uh, by, sorry, by the Library of Parliament and its legal team as not sequestering funds and following the rules of private member bills. But it's okay. The olive branch is out. Let's let's work together. I mean, to destroy a piece of legislation like this that's been so long coming, and such a rare opportunity to to get for for a member from from our province to be able to table a piece of legislation like this. It's uh, it's it's a it's a it would be a it would be a crime against our our devastated uh, marine ecosystem, and you know. To, to let this this piece of legislation die in second reading. Regarding trade barriers, which I think, I mean, this is always going to be the key surrounding whatever the future looks like for harvesting seals is a place to sell the product. And, you know, I think we've had a long focus on meat and the pelt, but, of course, seal meat is an acquired taste. I don't know how much of an appetite there is for expanding the market for meat, but um, like omega-3 oils, and I think that is, if I had any say in the matter, that's where I would start because the world is hungry for them, and the seal presents a really unique and very healthy option for omega-3 oils. But when you talk about trade barriers, is that a specific reference to decisions made by the world trade organization or are there other issues out there that we need to consider well I'll, I'll just I'll just look at the US here now for a second because the Marine Mammal Protection Act has been actually amended to allow for harvesting of sea lions in Oregon and Washington State and when I spoke to the parliamentary secretary for the Minister of Fisheries last week he didn't even know that that amendment had been made that that they're they're addressing the problem they have on the Columbia River, Not unaware, thinks that the Marine Mammal Protection Act can't be amended with the right effort. Yeah, but the, uh, that amendment would be for managing their own stock and uh, concerns versus l- eliminating the trade barrier because it's not like I can't even have a sealskin purse or boots and get into the states without having them confiscated, which is unbelievable. Exactly, but but their the own indi- indigenous uh, uh, communities in in Alaska, they want that amended as well. So if if you're going if you want to get some amendments to that to that act, you've got to lobby these people and educate them. And I'll tell you, and even in Maine, right now the harp seals and the grays migrating south from our waters down into Maine. So it's a problem on the on the eastern seaboard as well. So. There could be there could be some appetite there to to make some adjustments to the Marine Mammal Protection Act. It was never really about seals in the beginning. It was dolphins and whales. So um, the fact that the United States is now having to deal with their own ecological disaster that's been brought on by the overpopulation of pinnipeds helps us a bit. Um, I've had. Uh, the latest i've had it all patty i've had five or six reasons now why counterparts across the way say this is a bad bill the latest and greatest is that uh this is going to restrict access to seafood markets for for things like our snow crab for example okay so norway harvest whales harvest seals they're the number two supplier of seafood to the u.s market in the world right now russia is dumping cheap crab into the U.S. market unsanctioned. I think they've got till a little bit later in June or something before they get cut off. But they've destroyed the snow crab market by by dumping cheap crab in there unsanctioned. So the groups that are coming out and lobbying our politicians, telling them that, that you know we're going to be under attack in that market, 
I think that's a pretty, pretty hollow uh, or, or, or threat. Well, it's an, ups- it's an unsubstantiated uh, hyperbolic claim. Uh, that much I'll, I'll grant you for sure, Clifford. Uh, quickly before we run out of time this morning, six members representing the Liberal Party from this province. You know who they are. We all know who they are. Have you spoken directly with either of them? Have you been given any indication you'll have any support from the other me- MPs from Newfoundland and Labrador? I've, I've spoken directly or reached out, emailed uh, all of them. Um, there's there's a couple that have said that either to me or in media, I know of at least, at least two that said they'll be voting against it. There's there's others that indicated strong support for this bill and they'd be voting for it. They told me a month ago, some things have changed. We'll see where it goes. But I'll tell you what, we're very, very close on this and it'd be a tragedy for for the blue economy and for our indigenous communities and people that we could partner with to to form this framework and stakeholders that want to get in the committee they want this bill the press releases are coming out for, from from multiple multiple uh, uh, groups in support of this bill right now and if our Newfoundland and Labrador MPs can't put the partisan politics aside. This is not about me. This is about the, the folks that I fish side by side with, the plant workers that I'd landed my product to when I was a fishing skipper, and our indigenous communities that have had their way of life destroyed because they couldn't piggyback off, off our, uh, um, the sale of fur into, into Europe. It's, it, I, I, I really, really hope that my counterparts across the aisle vote for their constituents. In no shame, or there's no downside to making it into committee. Uh, last one, and a very quick one, and this, is, again, is a hypothetical, not always helpful, but I'm going to try anyway. Do you think in your heart of hearts there's a market for the product, period? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And one, one MP that's not in our party that I spoke with not long ago and guaranteed me support told me you know he he gets he understands the huge market that there is in in Asia for for seal oil and and uh, also in the US I've I've spoken with stakeholders that said Cliff if we could only get our product into that US market this this harvesting industry for seals would be worth millions, millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars that that market would represent. And at the same time, it addresses our ecological imbalance. Yeah, we could probably get some balance that uh, we've lost. Prey on their uh, their vanity with the sealskin coat. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate the time, Clifford. Uh, we'll all keep an eye as to how it uh, rolls out here this afternoon in Parliament. Thank you very much, Patty, and you have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Clifford Small. He's a member of the Conservative Party of Canada, of Costa Bay, Central Notre Dame. Time for a break. When we come back, Kevin's there. He's having an issue getting medical supplies. What kind? Stay tuned. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Kevin, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay. How are you doing? Oh, Patty, it's been a uh, rough road. but uh, uh, I called you back some time ago, Patty. I don't know if you can remember me. Uh, it was about a year ago. I was having trouble getting bandages, and I'm back in the same uh, situation again. Actually, it might have been even before COVID, but uh, 
Anyway, the situation now is, uh, like, I'm a diabetic, and I have uh, cellulitis in my legs, which is my legs are breaking down, and I'm containing, my body is containing a lot of fluid. So that has to be manually treated with bandages and and different kinds of uh, garments that that you wear to to keep the fluid down in your body. Back some eight or nine years ago, ten years ago, yeah, uh, I had number four heart attack, which at the time was the beginning of this disease, and I didn't realize what what it was doing to me. But what it was, the fluid was building up in my body, was going around my heart, and it gave me four heart attacks. Uh, Number four, I almost died, and I end up. uh, They sent me to Halifax to, uh, to 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 get the treatment that I needed for my heart. And then, of course, uh, we started working to get the fluid off my body. A part of doing that, uh, Patty, I need a, uh, it's a Coban bandage. And uh, for the last four months, uh, the Department of Health uh, has decided that the supervisor is the problem. Uh, She's decided that uh, because, uh, see, my body breaks down in fluid and I have several blisters so what they did was they mixed up the two types of bandages and she stopped all my bandages unless I did and what they wanted me to do was to uh, go down to the community health office uh, twice a month and uh, show wherever the uh, the wounds are and sometimes they're in very private areas and they they leak and I need bandages to take care of it and uh, Patty uh, they, they're refusing to do that. They don't understand that I don't have a vehicle, number one. Number two is I'm medically unable to, to, to walk into an office by myself. And number, the big part of it all is I see a specialist who writes prescriptions for the things that I need and recommends that I have those things. They overrule the doctor. And they refuse to give me my bandages uh, unless I follow this stupid policy that they have in. And uh, the policy is very difficult for me to follow, Patty. And I'm here now. My body is is swollen out of shape again. My legs, I'm awake all night long with pains in my legs. I can't sleep. And uh, uh, they're refusing to give me the stuff to to bandage my legs unless, like I said, I do this policy thing. And not only that, Patty, like I have special footwear that I'm supposed to be wearing. I got to have a, a, a winter thing and a summer thing. They've also stopped one of those. I can have the winter ones every two years, but uh, my summer ones, I can't have them until my winter ones are wore out. So they're only allowing me now one pair a year. So my my new shoes for this year is in St. John's, ready to be picked up. And I'm here with the feet burning off me, wearing a pair of winter boots. And I don't because that's all I can wear. They're specialty footwear because of my condition. And, and and like Patty, they've put me back. I'd say I'm gone back again. My legs were just about back to normal. I was doing really well, and uh, I was able to uh, like walk little bits with my walker, and I could go out around the yard just a little bit. Now I can't walk long distances. I have to walk probably 10 or 15 feet, and I got to sit down, and then I, I I get up and I can walk another little bit after a little bit. And it's a, it's a it's a tough road, but it's a uh, I was doing really really well, and uh, I, I don't understand why they would break something 
why they would break something that's not broken. My MHA, Helen Hottenheimer, has been tremendous trying to, to advocate on my behalf. But working with this crowd in, in Haggy's office, there's something else. I don't know what they're trying to prove. I really don't know what they're trying to prove. Uh, and, and like it's, uh, they have all the medical documents that they need. I see a specialist. I have a nursing team in St. John's that deals with this. And they, they're all recommending. And now the, the girl, one of the girls that's in this medical team, uh, yesterday gave me a box of Kelband. And my buddy went to St. John's and picked her up for me because he, she realized how important it was for me to have it. Like, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me either. What kind of costs are we talking about for the bandages in particular? Oh, like Patty, it's not, it's not, none of it is cheap, right? It's, it's expe- the Kelband is expensive stuff. And it's not something that you'd be able to afford. Like, Patty, I got $700 a month. That's what I live on. And I'm here with my wife, dying with cancer, Patty. I got all this stress on me myself. I'm, I got one foot in the grave myself. They won't leave me alone. They got me absolutely tortured. They haven't stopped for the last three or four years. Whatever they're trying to prove, just crowding this liberal government. And I was liberal all my life, Patty. And I got to tell you, I never went through so much. They got me absolutely tortured. I'm here fighting for my life, trying to, to live myself. I'm up all night long. I can't breathe because of the fluid on my body. With the windows open, the fans going, and, and, and then my home care worker, who was only getting paid for six hours a day, he, 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 he's good enough to come and open the Because I can't get up and open the windows, Patrick. He gets up and comes and does them for me. Kevin, can your home care worker administer the bandages? Do you need a nurse to do it? Do you need to be in a clinical setting? Patty, oh, yeah. Patty has been saying my home care worker is trained to do it. Okay. And has, been, and has been doing it for over 10 years. It doesn't cost the government any extra money whatsoever. I haven't got to go down tying up a nurse in, in the office, tying up somebody else's paper where somebody else can see it. My home care worker is trained to do it. All I need is the bandages. You know what I've been using for the when my wounds break open, Patty? I've been using towels and face cloths. I ended up in an intensive care uh, a few years ago. I was there for two weeks. I almost died because I picked up a massive infection using stuff that wasn't supposed to be used. And I have no choice, Patty. It's just it's constantly, when it starts to leak, the fluid is just constantly leaking. It soaks everything. Like, I don't know what they're trying to prove. It doesn't make sense. Well, being hospitalized with an infection is infinitely more expensive than provision of bandages or footwear. Kevin, I wish you well, you and your wife. I can hear the struggle in your voice. I wish there was something I could do immediately, but putting the message out there, hopefully that eliminates some of the red tape and the bureaucracy and some of the cuts, because if the end result was even one night in hospital, I would imagine that would cover an awful load of bandages uh, to keep you out of there, keep you healthy. I appreciate your time, sir. I wish you well. Can I tell you one more thing? Sure. I'll tell you how foolish they are. I I take Ventolin because of my breathing thing, like to be able to breathe, right? It costs $19 a month for Ventolin, right? For a full supply of Ventolin, it costs $19 a month in my medical stuff. They stopped paying for that, right? They tell me if I I get an asthma thing, Go get an ambulance, go to hospital. You go down and tie up an emergency room for two hours because you got to have two to three masks. They get another ambulance to bring me back home at $115 each trip. At tying up medical staff down in the emergency room, tying up the room for $20 a month. <laughs> Does that make sense? 
Not a lot of this makes much in the way of sense, Kevin. Uh, I, I do wish you well, sir. They're flagging me off late for the newscast, but take good care. Stay in touch. Hopefully the message helps uh, so for some change. Thanks a lot, Patty, for your help again. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Um, let's go and take a break. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Zita. You're on the air. Line number five, Zita, you're on the air. Put Zita on hold. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the mayor of the town of Whitburn. That's Hilda Whalen. Good morning, Mayor Whalen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'd like to address the the medical uh, association here in and the problems that we're having in Eastern Health. Not only Eastern Health, but all over the province. In the last uh, five to seven years, we have all heard that the health new health cord will be out. It will address mental health care and the overall. You, plan to improve our, our health care as well as well as good. But is that the closing of our clinics and the lack of doctors, is that part of the health care plan or is it a lack of doctors? To centralize uh, health care in Newfoundland, impossible with our geographic around the island. The staffing to uh, to our our clinic has been closed, you know, because we lost the technicians. So the doctors left; they couldn't have have a twenty four hour emergency. Then, of course, we got our technician back. We got our nurses. Not a problem. We have no doctor. There are no doctors in any of these clinics that they closed. Is it part of the plan, or is it lack of doctors? I would say probably lack of doctors. They do have did put in place a special recruitment, one person, but she hasn't started yet. A yeah, while ago, maybe a year and a half ago or so, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, they put in place a rule for, and I was trying to get through them this morning to get a little more clarification on that, a rule that the uh, foreign doctors, when they come in, have to... Uh, uh, have a license or training, etc. Now, we have been uh, uh, serviced by, I'd say, 80% uh, in areas of foreign doctors, and they've done fantastic work. There may be some that may need some training in special areas, but what they should have done was put in place a, a committee of some sort to probably overlook, and if they saw that there was a area where they need training to do so right now we have no doctors in this province and not a chance in hell of getting them from any other province we have to go right now we have to do better than all of the provinces to retain them or to get them in the first place but two years ago, when uh, Minister Hagee and, and the Premier knew that the College of Physicians and Surgeons were putting these rules in place, they knew that we would have a shortage at that time. And they should have been proactive and addressed the situation. In fact, seven years ago, they should have put in place 
a a recruitment of not one but ten people to to address the issue. This has been slowly slowly has gotten to the point now where it's absolutely at a critical stage. It should never have gotten there. And I know myself, like many others in this province, figured, oh, we have two doctors in place; they'll fix health care. No. Out of the millions and millions that has been spent, billions, I would say, in the last seven to ten years, if there were anyone in that confederation building, I, I'm not an educated person, but I'm sure they're in there, you know, they should have looked over that budget and say, okay, what do we have here that is less important than our health care? Tick them off, okay? We have millions. You can train the doctors. You can't retain them. The thing is now we have to look at the best-paid doctors in this country. We have to better that. We have to better the incentives. We can train all we like. And, and uh, Nova Scotia and the other province, they'll all thank us because they won't take them. The what? Pardon me? Nova Scotia won't take the doctor? No, I said they will take them from us. They will recruit them. We train them, and they will recruit them. Doctors aren't staying here because because they don't have the incentive and the pace. A direct instance is my granddaughter. She graduated from nursing. She went to the hospital here. They could give her part-time, and that was the same year before that that they sent millions in overtime. She went to Nova Scotia to see her parents before she settled into her her work. She went to the hospital. They offered her a $2,000 signing bonus, $2,000 on the anniversary every year she's there, full-time, all paid better than here. Uh, What department would you like to work in? Now, you can, uh, I heard Mr. Haggy, uh, uh, Minister Haggy, uh, talk about all the nurses and the sites are open. I was saying, good luck on retaining them. Yeah, and if it's all about money, it might be for some, but I don't imagine that's the uh, the determining factor for every doctor that's being aggressively re- recruited right around the country. I'm sure maybe for some, you know, I'm a single man or woman, I graduate from med school, and I'm looking at my bills and my loans, and maybe money will be exactly that. But, of course, that's where, you know, there's a different recruitment strategy required for different parts of the province, different recruitment strategy required if and when the doctor has a family. You know, all of these things, I think, add to the variables, and hopefully the new deputy minister responsible for recruiting and retaining is trying to figure this stuff out. It's one thing to get a doctor in Whitburn, different one for Bay Roberts, different one for Fogo Island, different for Bell Island, you know, and based on single, family, whatever the case may be. So I'm sure glad it's not my job because I think it's a little bit more complicated than maybe we give a credit for. But uh, I appreciate your time and your concerns this morning, uh, uh, Mayor Whalen. Would you like to say anything else before we go? Well, I, I, I think that what we need to do is we have to put pressure on on our minister and, and uh, our premier to do better. I mean, this should never have come to this crisis. They should have been proactive and, and and went out there, like you say, and see what is it does it take to keep these doctors. You can train all you like. If you don't sign them to a contract and give them something that, that that's going to keep them here, they're not going to stay. 
And and I'm, I mean, I don't think there's any province now that is in worse condition than us. And the Whitburn Clinic here, we have 19 communities that this community, this uh, clinic services. Plus, we have the highway accidents. You know, and and there is no doctor, no future to see that we're going to get one. And all the other clinics and uh, Fogo Island and Billon, like it's this has this has to change, or we have to change the government and find somebody who do know how or can devise a, a plan to get this working. I mean, I'm working with uh, the Eastern uh, Regional Director for Rural Health, and he 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 can't get me what not what's not there and and somehow i mean they have to wake up i don't care i mean there is no no person in this province would bat an eyelid with all the money that has been thrown around in the last 10 years there is no one to bat an eyelid if they said we're going to spend millions and millions we're devising a plan and we're getting doctors no one would bat an eyelid because it is the most important and pressing issue that this province has now i appreciate the times for mayor whalen thank you thank you take care bye-bye it's mayor hilda whalen out in the town of whitburn when we come back from this break uh, zita hopefully she's back in the queue she wants to respond to our first caller of the morning who's sarah talking about the fact that the mental health crisis line has now been blended into 811 we'll hear from zita right after this welcome back let's see line number two zita you're on the air Hi, Patty. Sorry Hi. about the last time. No problem. I blew up my phone. Uh, I want to talk about uh, mental health um, when we when you call in. I am myself a multiple sclerosis support leader. So from various times, I will get calls or I will get emails or I will get messages from people that are uh, depressed. Some not so uh, not to the point that they got to call mental health, but some to the point that mental health has to intervene. And my position is to, when I see the need, I have to reach out to professionals that can help the person more so than than I am qualified to. Uh, I had an incident just a while ago, an individual, I was dealing with this individual for a while, and um, this individual um, wrote uh, things to me, indicating to me that I, when I read it, that I should call the crisis line. So I did go ahead and call the crisis line. When I called the crisis line, I got, I would think it's like a secretary or that or administrator. And I explained to them my position, give them my name right away, explain my position, why I was calling and that. And they were going, they said they would put me over to a nurse. But the thing that the administrator said was, if we lose your call, we have your number, we'll call you back. So when they went to put me over to the nurse, they lost my call. The nurse called me back. I spoke to the nurse, did the same thing again, 
uh, t- I thought the administrator was after telling what, like so much of what I told them, but they didn't. So I told the nurse from the beginning, introduced myself again, give my position, everything. And the nurse asked me, uh, when was this individual's birthday? What was this individual? What did this individual do today? Uh, when I deal with uh, people as a support leader, as an MS support leader, I don't know this. I might never seen this person. I'm just talking to them through uh, maybe email or on the phone. I don't know uh, birthdays. They ask what the age was. Well, I could just talking to you. I might be able to give a round bell figure, but I don't know for sure. Okay, I'm a little bit confused. So you're calling on behalf of someone. So how are you to get whatever commentary or guidance, advice from the person on the other end of the phone to then relay to the person who needs it as opposed to them call on their own accord? How does that work? What what it is is what um, is what usually is when the person either sometimes you get some people that will FaceTime you, some people that wants to do that and some people will uh, just want to message you or uh, email you and it's what they say in their I'm trained to pick up what they say in their message okay. to me okay. and then when when they say something that I'm trained for in the message I will try to I will reach out again to that individual I'm dealing with but if that individual don't come back to me then I know this is what I have to do next and so is this calling the crisis line that once was or is this since it's been 811 no this is since it's been 811 okay and I did and so the the nurse did say that they would transfer me to the RNC. But again, saying, if we, if I lose you, we have your number. Now, what, uh, I said, okay, thank you. And they sent me, and they did lose me as they were putting me to the RNC ops. But the thing is, is, okay, I'm a support leader calling on behalf of somebody so okay they 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 lose with me i'll pick up when they call again because i'm waiting for them right but the person going through the mental illness that feels like the world is no longer they should be in it and that they're not going to pick up again patty they may never pick up again. Well, I heard one uh, reaction to Sarah's call saying that if they were put on hold for five or six minutes, they'd hang up. And I think that's probably a popular sentiment uh, associated with this, whether it be the call was lost or extensive time on yeah. hold. We'll try to get some more details and information about exactly what's going on and whether yeah. or not this is the growing pains or there's some data about just how long oh. people are being put on hold or what have you. But I'll let you wrap it up, Sita. Go ahead. Okay, I got to say, once I got over to the RNC officer, uh, they were very, very, now the whole staff was very understanding, but the RNC officer I spoke to, I, I, for some reason I got the indication that they were trained, this person I was, the individual I was talking to, was trained in mental health because the way they spoke and just the carrying off it after and everything, 
and that it was it's is everything it's not a perfect system and nothing's perfect in this world but it's is some bugs in it that we got to look at right for it but uh, i must say the individual that i'm dealing with now is on a good road now well, I'm glad to hear it, and you know, maybe people will be lucky enough to get to speak with a uh, uh, constable, Christopher Fagan, or someone. And I'm sure there's many RNC officers who have got some pretty comprehensive training regarding mental illness and mental health. Uh, I appreciate the time, Zita. It's an interesting. I didn't even know this was a process available where a support leader could, on behalf of the people she's supporting, do these things, relay information, what have you. I didn't even know it worked like that. But I appreciate you making time for the show. Okay, thank you for your time, Patty. Have Anytime. Okay, bye-bye. You too, Zita, bye-bye. All right, it is uh, time for the news. So a quick check-in on the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back from the news, Leslie's right there. She wants to talk about uh, the NLC robberies and addiction services. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Leslie. You're on the air. Good day, Penny. Good day to you. Um, So I just want to start by saying that um, addiction is classified as an illness by the World Health Organization, so that is not up for debate. Um, I am a user of addiction services. I am in recovery from alcohol use disorder, as well as the fact that I'm a community advocate. So all this situation with the NLC experiencing thefts is not a surprise. So we saw at the beginning of COVID, we knew that addictions were going to increase. The NLC had record profits. Um, and the services available for addiction in the province is seriously lacking. So basically what we're doing in this province is just putting a Band-Aid on a broken leg. So we have services such as the Recovery Center, which I have personally been to three times. Um, so that is essentially just for detox. So after those three to five days are done, you are just put right back to where you were in the first place. Uh, the last time I was there was rather devastating as there were people that were begging to stay. They were asking for help. They didn't know where they were going. And there's a six to eight week list uh, week week uh, for any of the rehab centers in the province, which there are two of. Uh, it could be even longer now, actually. So what are people going to do in the meantime when they leave a, the recovery center and they're on this huge wait list? There's a huge lack of community resources. There's no sober living facilities uh, that I'm aware of. Um, and there's very, it's very difficult to obtain counseling. So I just want to say that it, it's um, no surprise that there would be a, a black market occurring. Um, People were given a living wage with COVID benefits. Uh, it was only back in May uh, last month that that was the end of some of those COVID benefits. So if you don't know a lot about alcohol use, uh, it is one of the most dangerous drugs, and it is readily available, and it's actually socially encouraged. But alcohol withdrawal can actually very quickly cause death. So Why, because you know, of the chemical dependence? Yes, absolutely. So that's why Recovery Center exists and medical detox, because you would have to come off that alcohol withdrawal using specific medications, or you could have very serious side effects. Um, And that is something that people don't realize, that alcohol withdrawal is actually more serious than coming off of a drug such as heroin. No, I know it is, and that's why they ask you questions about your intake when you present yourself, for instance, at a hospital to be admitted and what have you, because they have to monitor it and treat it as they treat whatever other ailments you may be admitted for. Um, yeah, we do a poor job on addiction services here. We all know it to be true. The overlap, I would imagine there's absolutely an overlap between 
addiction and the robberies at the NLC. There's long been a black market. I mean, just think about all the bottles that have come from St. Pierre that have been sold out of the back of a van uh, here in the province over the years. Same th- thing with cigarettes and what have you. But I mean, this seems to be maybe fueling people's addictions, but this has a different feel regarding the organized criminal element here and how they're so easily getting away with all the thefts that are occurring in the NLC outlets. So it's, a, it's a bizarre story. It, I, I do agree with your viewpoint there, of course, and I'm not saying that theft is okay. No, 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 I, I didn't imply that. I, I certainly didn't mean to anyway. For sure. Um, but when you're putting vulnerable people who are experiencing an illness into a vulnerable situation, um, they are going to do what is necessary to keep themselves either alive or keep using the drug that they're addicted to. And this is just a known fact in science. Um, but there are things that we can do as a province. So we have already identified, uh, and I mean we as a society, scientists, psychiatrists, etc., that there are risk factors for addiction. So that would essentially mean that there are protective factors for addiction. So things such as access to affordable housing, which is a huge issue, uh, giving people a living wage, access to education, community support groups. There are just so many things that we could be doing that would help people. And people are dying. And this is not going to stop until we actually band together and complete something. Yeah, there's the rub, isn't it? Because so many people will think that whether it be an increase in a social assistance payment or universal basic income or what have you, the pushback is if people who have bad habits, addictions, any additional monies may just increase their reliance on their addiction. They'll just buy and consume more, which I think is a, a little bit of an exaggerated oversimplification, when in fact, more money in your pocket can go a long way to dealing with all sorts of societal ills. But it also has to be done in conjunction with adequate harm reduction policies and opportunities for recovery, because one without the other is simply, as you, I think, rightfully put it earlier, a Band-Aid on a broken leg. You can't do and just take one of those steps. They all have to be done at the exact same time. So people can take it for what it's worth. We understand the science behind it. We understand the documented academic research on it. We know, like even I mentioned off the top of the show, this morning, the stark reality of where we are is, in addition to first aid training, CPR and the like that's offered in some high schools, we're not going to teach students about how to deal with and what to do when they see someone overdosing on an opioid and teach them how to inject naloxone. So, as I said earlier, you're much more likely to encounter that as a high schooler or a recent grad than you are to ever have to apply the Heimlich maneuver. So, let's just be realistic about where we are, talk about the pragmatic solutions that are there, and don't do them one at a time, because if we think that we're pretending that these are highly isolated incidents. We're kidding ourselves. Between January and September of last year, there was over 5,800 opioid-related deaths. 94% of them were accidental. You add into the, the, uh, the equation the numbers of people struggling and addicted to whatever, alcohol, gambling, eating, drugs, it's a plague on society. We've been talking about a crisis and a pandemic with a virus. We have these ongoing societal issues that are right in front of us. It doesn't make you a bad person to have fallen prey to one of these substances. Now, the trick is, how do we get you the help when you want the help? Again, you can't have one without the other. And it's not just money. It's everything else that I mentioned. Because without the full package, we're just pretending we're making a difference. Absolutely. And all of those factors are correlated and integrated. Um, And we lack the infrastructure and the resources to be able to handle what I'm going to call now is an addiction pandemic. So 
that is what we have to focus on changing. So whether that's through health authorities or through um, like our community service organizations, I know that a lot of them are doing the best that they can. But with lack of funding, um, without people even being made aware that these services are available, it sometimes feels like there's nowhere to turn and you have to keep knocking on doors and fighting. And a lot of us don't make it that far. And I'm fortunate to be one of the ones that have. So I want to speak for the others that cannot speak for themselves right now. Yeah, you mean, you know, squeaky wheel and being determined and having a champion in your corner, it's all fine and dandy. But sometimes people run out of fight. They just run out of it. And then what happens? Yeah. They remain addicted to whatever it is, and the death spiral could be could happen very, very quickly. So you shouldn't have to fight for these things. You should have to present yourself and get the help because society should understand not only the addiction for the individual, their friends, their family, public safety, health care, the justice system. It's all absolutely intertwined. So let's make sure that if your concern is being safe, your concern is saving money, then let's ensure that you can get both of those if we do better for folks who are not only left behind, but are struggling mightily, especially with an addiction. I'll give you the last word. Leslie, go right ahead. Yeah, so we have a lot of social systems that I think kind of are getting known to be not the best way to operate. So we have things such as like puni- uh, punishment for one uh, in the justice system. There are a lot of issues in regards to our education system. All the things that I previously mentioned, I just want to say there's a lot of work that we can do. And I just want to bring the issue to the forefront that people with addictions are really struggling. It's really hard to find help and we need to do more. That we do. Good to have you on the show, Leslie. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, it, it just happens far too often that, well, someone made a bad decision. Okay, let's say they did. We don't necessarily treat someone the same way that if they were riding their mountain bike and fell off and broke their arm, they made a bad decision. So things happen in society. Addictions and some of these substances are just so highly addictive. It's a psycho, it's a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, it's a physiological dependency that sometimes, and just remember, some of these types of addictions may occur initially from a doctor's prescription pad. So yeah, even if someone made a bad decision, that doesn't mean that we punish them further because if you are concerned with the cost of health care, access, wait times, public safety, criminal justice, they all have a distinct unfortunate overlap with those issues. Let's take a break. Final one in the morning. When we come back, we'll pick up again on Bill C-251, a framework to deal with the pinnipeds, the seals and sea lines, the walruses, access to markets and the like with the PC member for Bonavista. That's Craig Party. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, seeing more to the PC member for Bonavista. That's Craig Party. Craig, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you very much for taking my call. Happy to do it. I said I was thinking while listening to your callers, I said when we leave the caucus room and head towards the House of Assembly, our leader, David Brazel, will often say, let's keep it real. And I said, your show certainly keeps it real. I said, with the callers, it's as real as it, uh, as it can get. So good job on your, on your program, Patty. Uh, 
you had mentioned in the preamble the the food fishery. Uh, just just a note on that. I would hope that we would have had the dates by now, um, not only for the residents of Newfoundland, Labrador, or the district of Bonavista, Vista. It would be for those people who are planning an itinerary as tourists that come to our district and come to our province. That an integral part of doing that is getting out on the water and participating in the in the food fishery. And uh, so it's unfortunate that we're in the middle of June and we still don't have the dates. And surely, goodness, if I'm missing something, it can't be overly complicated in order to come out with the with the dates. We've been doing it for years. Uh, I, I wanted to call in to support uh, Bill C-251, Patty, and to give my support for Cliff Small. He was on earlier, and, and I had the opportunity to listen to him. Uh, I look at the significance of his bill, and if we go back to the early 80s, we, we've had many people um, that had talked about seal predation. We had we had commissions. Uh, David Vardy's, I'm thinking about his, his uh, eminent panel on seal management. Uh, as part of that, we were inundated with studies on the management and what the effects of seal predation is on our on our stock. And whether it be John Effort, the Tom Rideouts, the Roger Fitzgeralds, the David Vardy's, as mentioned, and even to current the Bob Hardy's, uh, we've talked about it, we've debated it, we've we've studied it, and we've got the information. The only thing we need is to address it. And this is what Bill C-251, thanks to Cliff Small, is bringing to the House this afternoon at, uh, I'm assuming, the late later part of the afternoon. I just wanted to weigh in and try to make it real, like Dave Brazel would say. we harvest our commercial harvesting, uh, what we bring in the fish, that nets us a little over $1, million, $1 billion. Uh, we're a little over 200,000 metric tons of harvest, and that nets us a little over $1 billion. If seals consume in 6 to 10 days what we harvest per year annually, um, 200,000 metric tons, then if you just take the, uh, the monetary value of what we harvest, 1 billion, and look at what seals consume in 6 to 10 days and say that we have an industry here, uh, which again now it's, um, it's struggling, thankfully to the, the snow crab that um, you know, we're, we're doing well, but if we look at our other species, we are in tough shape. And the two things we can control is our commercial harvesting, which our quotas are very low, uh, and the other thing would be is, uh, is predation. So the importance of this bill this afternoon can't be understated. Um, and just to conclude, uh, the Mayor Whitburn was on and talked about government ought to be proactive. Gus Etchgeary in his book Empty Nets talks about mismanagement of our resource. Well, we are where we are because we have not taken action. And I know there are variables and the factors why we don't take action, but I would say we're long overdue, and I would certainly hope that this bill does pass and proceed to committee in the in the House of Commons this afternoon and at least give us a chance because as uh, – as uh, Ryan Cleary mentioned yesterday, he mentioned the time to take action is now, and I would say we are certainly past due. So I do wish Cliff Small all the success, uh, you know, in in the um, in the bill presentation this afternoon, and certainly hope that he does get the votes in order for it to proceed to committee. If he doesn't get significant support from across the aisle, it's going nowhere. Dies on the on the table today. 
Yep, no, 100%. Yep, yep. And, and that's how significant it is. And remember now, Patty, I think you mentioned in the preamble as well, how many decades we've been waiting for this. And, and what has got to happen to our stock before we really act on it? You know, like I said, thankfully to the snow crab, we, we've got the income we've got. But if you remove the snow crab and something ever happened to that industry, whether the markets or whatever it is, then by golly, we are in trouble in our province with the fishery. And I got 58 communities in the district of Bonavista, and not one is not linked to the to the blue economy and to the um, to the water. And the significance would be is that. Uh, if we got a $1 billion industry, I've contended and spoke in the House that I think it ought to be a $5 billion industry, just based on what I had just stated. And if that's the case, that would certainly help out with the deplorable roads that we would have, with the health crisis that we would have, and all of a sudden is generating revenue on something of which this land was settled on, the fishery. Uh, the recommendation is 32 years old. It came from Leslie Harris's report on the state of northern cod, and that included seal predation and a variety of other factors some of which weren't even present or uh, that focus on in those days. I mean, we can't do much to control sea ice or sunlight or phytoplankton, but there are things that are absolutely under our control, at least partial control. I appreciate the time this morning, Craig. Thank you very much. Thank you, Patty. Keep up the good work. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Greg Party. He's the PC member for Bonavista. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Gertie. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, thanks for taking my call. No problem. I'm just calling in. I want to throw it out there about our little grandson. Uh, he's been bullied in school mm-hmm. by a teacher. By a teacher? Yeah. What's going on? Uh, that we do not know. But his parents, I'm the grandmother. His parents are trying to find out to get to the bottom of it. But for the last 30 days, he's been in a seat... Uh, sitting by the window, facing the window, looking outside for his last 30 days. And he's not allowed to go over, like in the classroom now, in the grade four classroom. Uh, there's no seats. They just got the tables around and all the children are sitting around at two tables. So he's not allowed over with his friends. He's in that seat all day by himself staring out the window. Now, this has been going on since January, apparently, and the parents only found out about it uh, Monday, the last couple of days. So is the... Did he do something wrong or act out, and this is the type of punishment that he's receiving, or is he being isolated no. for some reason that we know of? just no. sounds like a strange way to treat a little boy in grade four. His parents asked him, did he do anything? Well, I mean, Patty, if you did something or carried on with the rest of the children, why would you be put aside for 30 days? Apparently, it's been going on since January. He's been in that seat off and on since January. Now, we don't know if there's a, uh, discrimination there, but our little boy is from Iqaluit. He's Inuit. My son and his wife adopted him 10 years ago. Actually, he was 10 years old yesterday, his 10th birthday yesterday. But he's good with all his little friends. He got lots of friends. He's very quiet, very soft-spoken. But wanted to get a little children in the class told his parents that the teacher was always picking on him and got him over by the window. 
Well, if it's... Uh, we're heartbroken. Oh, I'm sure you are. If it's being unfairly done, then the teacher needs to be dealt with. I have no idea what the backstory is here or what goes no, on I in the classroom, but to, we need I to be fair. I just wanted to call you and put it out there to make it known, right, what can be going on. Yeah, well... In, in, in this time, I mean, this is not the 1900s. Uh, this goes... To me, to me, this represents the residential schools. This is very heartbreaking. Well, if it's if it's rooted in that type of unfair treatment of the child, then that's disgraceful. Uh, hopefully, if there was anything that happened in the school that requires, you know, some form of punishment, 30 days isolated, it doesn't sound like it's uh, sensible no. when we're talking about a child in grade four who's having a hard time processing it and doesn't even know what to say to his own parents about it. Mm. Gertie, you've had the last word this morning. I appreciate the time. I hope the young I fella's doing you. okay. I thank you very much for taking the call. My pleasure. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. All right, uh, Gertie did indeed have the last word here this morning. Uh, big thanks to all of you supporting the show. That's all of the listeners, callers, emailers, and tweeters. You are all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.